Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 54, verses 1 through 7. We will also be reading the pretext prior to this verse. Uh, This psalm can be found on page 475 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Please follow with me as we read Psalm 54, 1 through 7. A mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Verse 1. O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ears to the words of my uh, the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. Um, well, good morning. It's great to be here representing RUF. For those who are wondering, are anxiously awaiting me to make some comment about my alma mater, I'm going to refrain and act mature just for a little bit. Um, but no, it's great to be here. And I just want, just as I represent RUF Ole Miss up here, I want y'all to know that RUF is much bigger than its campus minister. Uh, our staff down here, Kaylee, Caroline, and Walker, work tirelessly on RUF and uh, pastoring students. Our student leaders, over 60 student leaders that we have in our ministry are what really make us. Y'all saw a part of them up here with the worship band. So I'm just really thankful for what God is doing through our ministry here. I was even at Pickleball Fridays that we do, and I overheard a freshman saying, RUF's where I found my main source of friendship this year. So uh, I'm just really encouraged by that. And I know y'all have a lot to do with that, Christ Pres Pres specifically, of being a home church. Uh, We are not our own separate entity. We are attached and an arm of the church on campus. So what we do uh, ultimately has your good uh, and the kingdom's good in mind. But when I was thinking about um, becoming an RUF campus minister, I remember talking to one of my friends because right now I, I would consider what I said, I would consider myself to having like the best job in the world. It's amazing. But as I was talking to one of my friends about whether he wanted to be a campus minister or not, he was kind of on the fence. And he said this to me, I remember it vividly. He said, Austin, I don't think I wanna be a campus minister. I just think I would get sick of talking about breakups and roommate drama and parent dynamics. Like I actually wanna talk about real things, real hard things with that people are going through. And I kind of looked at him, didn't know how to answer um, because I easily could have responded and say, you know, 18 to 22 year olds are not exempt from hard things, like really, really hard, terrible things that, the life, uh, that our life involves with this fallen world. But also, as I thought about it more, I come to realize like when I get coffee with students, when our staff gets coffee with students, we often do talk about breakups. We talk about roommate drama. We talk about parent dynamics. And I was trying to think, why is that not real things, you know? What is it about those things that is important? Why does God invite us to faithfully walk with students 
um, through these relational conflicts that they're constantly going through, even if us adults think they're mundane and not that big of a deal. As I thought more about this and considered the scriptures, what I think we find in the Bible is that all conflicts are a big deal. All hurt that we have, all wounds that we experience are a big deal, especially the ones that we form at an early age. Because the wounds we form at an early age, the hurt we experience on behalf of others, often shapes the way we see reality, often shapes how we engage with ourselves, with others, and with God. And if we're going to take God seriously, then we also need to take our wounds seriously. And I think Christianity has some amazing resources for not only just the reality that we live in a broken world with broken relationships, but I also think it provides us the resources that dignify our hurt and even give us the resources to move through it with hope. And so we're going to look at that in consideration of Psalm 54, which I think encapsulates all of this so well today by looking at the psalm under three different headings. So we're going to look at reckoning, remembering, and responding. That first one, reckoning. If you're familiar with the psalms uh, at all, you might have read that a lot of psalms have a pretext to it. And Tim came up and when he read the psalm, he read that pretext. And the the pretext that I think is important for us today is, is when this, David writes this psalm and he says, this psalm was written when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? That story that David is telling there, that context that we're given is actually a story referenced in 1 Samuel 23, when David was on the run from King Saul. Saul had now been consumed by his insecurity, by his uh, hunger and thirst for power. David was undermining that because he was getting a great reputation. He was even anointed by Samuel. And now David was on the run hiding from Saul. And he found himself at this point in time in this wilderness, this wilderness of Ziph, where these people called the Ziphites lived. Now the Ziphites, I learned as I was studying this passage, were actually of the tribe of Judah. And if you know anything about David, David was of the tribe of Judah. So you imagine that if David was going to find a safe place to hide, would it not be with his family, the people that knew him, the people that just by their kinship would probably be bound to protect him? But as we see in this psalm, that didn't happen. If you look at 1 Samuel 23, what happened was they went behind his back and told Saul exactly where David was hiding. They ratted him out. I want you to put yourself in David's shoes just for a second. Can you imagine the pain the wound that he carried when the one closest to him betrayed him in such a way. Perhaps you've been in a similar place before. I hope not running for your life because of somebody betraying you. But I can only assume because you're human that you carry wounds of people that are closest to you harming you. That cutting criticism from a parent that made you feel about this small. That rejection from a love interest or a friend group that you really wanted approval of and it shattered any sliver of confidence you had left in you. Or perhaps a passive aggressive comment from a spouse or an aggressive aggressive comment from a spouse that really just cuts to the core of your insecurities that you already had about their feelings about you. We all have these hurts, these small hurts that are in our mind or big hurts that are in our mind that burn into our memory permanently. To be human is to be vulnerable to such injury and as Les and Brian have been talking through the book of Genesis and giving us categories for what it looks like to actually engage in a fallen world that has been fallen in sin, they not only talked about how our vertical relationship with the Lord has fractures in it now, but those fractures dispersed horizontally. 
they now go out to our own human relationships as well. I mean, the chapter right after Genesis 3, Cain and Abel, family members turning on each other. And one of the more important things about the Psalms that I believe is they invite us to not suppress our wounds, to not write them off or explain them away. The Psalms are actually God coming to us and saying, you have a responsibility, perhaps even a duty to express these wounds to me. And as we try to figure out why is God, why is God wanting us to express and to process our own hurt? What does he have to say about it? What does he want from us? And one of the reasons I believe that this is the case is because, because God knows that our hurt isn't static, meaning our hurt is dynamic. It has power. And if we don't deal with it, if we suppress it or ignore it, it actually has the capacity to turn into hurt for other people, to come out sideways. You've heard that common saying, hurt people hurt people. It's because hurt people often don't process their own wounds. The author of Hebrews, as he was considering the power of our own wounds, says this in Hebrews 12, 15. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many come defiled. That's interesting. What keeps us from obtaining the grace of God, he says, enjoying it, really savoring the grace of God, is it's usually not other people, but it's the own bitterness that we harbor in our own soul. I've heard bitterness explained this way, that bitterness is hurt that's been fermented. One psychologist described it, in this way, all bitterness starts out as hurt. Anger and resentment is likely what we're, what we're to experience whenever we conclude that someone has wounded us. But left to fester, that righteous anger eventually becomes a corrosive ulcer of bitterness. As many of you know, if you're living in Oxford, the flu has been going around. Uh, and I think bitterness often works like the flu. You didn't ask for it. You didn't even know the people you were around, that you were around had it. And yet somebody else, because they were sick, gave it to you. And yet, if we try to ignore or suppress the symptoms of the flu, what happens? They, go, they get worse. The flu, our sickness, has to be addressed. It has to be stewarded. We have to take the responsibility to do something with it, even though we weren't the ones who caused it. I was thinking of an example, a biblical example, of what bitterness looks like worked out. And all I could think of was the, the elder brother and the story of the prodigal son. He was hurt that his father gave the younger son his inheritance to go off and to spoil himself with while he was faithfully staying back. And yet he didn't address it. He didn't deal with it. He let it fester and ferment. And when the younger son came back and when the father threw him a party, he stayed on the outside, continuing to seethe in his anger. But here in the Psalm, David invites us to another way. God invites us to another way. To actually go to God with our hurt, to reckon with the reality that we live with it and these wounds can shape us. In verse three, this is exactly what David is doing. It's interesting, he calls these people strangers. We heard before, they're his family, but he calls them strangers. That's how angry he is. He says, ruthless men that seek his life. He's being honest about what he's actually feeling in the moment. But besides just being a safe place, a refuge to take his hurt, the Psalm also teaches us more about what God wants to do with our hurt. Second, David remembers his hurt. That's our second point, remembering. In the midst of this psalm, David remembers two main things I see in verse one 
about God that impact the way he's gonna process these wounds. The first thing that he remembers is God's name. Look at verse one, the first part. He says, oh God, save me by your name. Now, what about God's name was such a comfort to David? In the Old Testament, uh, maybe you have heard before that God's name is a big deal. It's a significant thing. The people of Israel often recalled God's name in order to inform their hope and their peace. That's because when God says his name, it's never just a thing to call him. It's never just an identification marker. When God says his name, he always wants his people to attach his character to it. And when they attach his character to it, he also wants them to know his action is always attached to it as well. The key text for this is Exodus 34, when God reveals his name to the people of Israel, to Moses. And he says this to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, that's him telling Moses his name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David recalling God's name was him recalling that God is gonna act on his behalf through his character, that he doesn't have to take things into his own hands, that he isn't on his own, but that God is going to keep his covenant with him. My friend, Davis Morgan, He's a uh, RUF campus minister at Southern Miss. He did a seminar at an RUF conference on bitterness and it was just gold. I'm taking a lot of this stuff from him, but here's one of the, his direct quotes. He says that bitterness is a counterfeit story that challenges the supremacy of the gospel as our primary narrative identity, the story that tells you who you are. What he means by this is that bitterness, when it gets inside of us, ends up telling us who we are in a false way, a counterfeit way. We end up living not in reality, grounded in who God is for us and what he is doing on our behalf, but we end up falling counterfeit to lies, or we end up falling victim to counterfeits and lies. The counterfeit story of bitterness is that no one's coming for you, that God might see you, we hope, but he's not gonna intervene on your behalf. He's not gonna comfort you. He's not gonna right all the wrongs that you've experienced. I'm thankful to my staff for pointing me to Taylor Swift's new album, uh, Midnights. And she has a song that I think puts us inside this feeling of bitterness. You're on your own kid, you always have been. She keeps saying over and over, this is the story of bitterness, that you're on your own, that you have to fight for yourself and fend for yourself. But what God would say is that if you are in Christ, This is a counterfeit story. That's a lie. The truth is that you're never on your own if you're in Christ, that you have been bound covenantally to a God who will act on your behalf and has promised to, that you don't have to take things into your own hands, but you can trust in faith that God not only cares about your hurt, but will seek justice for it. That's what David remembers when he thinks about God's name which is a reminder also the second thing that David remembers, that he remembers God's name, but also God's power. The end of verse one, save me by your name, vindicate me by your might. What I love about God is that he never condemns our anger, at least our righteous anger. Um, He is not mad at us for being mad at things that have happened to us that are really wrong. 
God's holiness actually necessitates that he is also angry at the things that that have been done to us that are wrong, that are out of his design for creation. And with his power, what God also promises is that he is going to right those wrongs. When we believe that counterfeit story of bitterness, what we're believing is the fact that God's not going to act according to his promises, that if we want to right our wrongs, have our wrongs and our hurts righted, we have to take things to our own hands. And the, way, and the reason that God says in the book of Romans in chapter 12, hey, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, is because what's also true about our stories is that we have no idea in our fallen state how to execute justice well. And what faith looks like is trusting or is being suspicious of our own ways that we wanna execute what's right and wrong, even though we've been hurt and falling in trust to God who will right our wrongs and he will do it appropriately and rightly. The Psalm reminds us that God's name and God's power give a unique comfort and a hope to a hurting people. But I also think as we Christians stand on the other side of the cross than David was standing on, There's also one more thing that I think we should remember. What we find in Christ is that God not only cares about our hurt, he not only has the power to overcome it through the resurrection, but we also see that God dignifies our hurt in Jesus. He sympathizes with us in it. He knows what it's like because he took it on himself. Just think about the amount of hurt that Jesus accrued in his life, rejected by men betrayed by his own disciple, innocently accused and convicted, put to death and beaten and humiliated by his oppressors, crying out on the cross to his father in loneliness and in hurt as he breathed his last breath. In a world that only has answers for our hurt that are just cliches, that really are just hollow promises, like it'll get better, you know, better days are ahead or it won't last forever. What I think is just beautiful is the fact that the gospel not only says it will get better, but it also gives us the permission to say, yeah, it's really not great right now. This hurts. Jesus taking on flesh, taking on the hardship of human relationships dignifies our hurt because he says, I know what it's like to. He met us in it. And I think it's with this hope that not only is the resurrection a promise that our hurts will be righted, but also the incarnation is the promise that our hurts are dignified, that we can get to verse six and seven. We can get to a place where we could say verse six and seven, which brings me to my last point, responding. You'll see in a lot of Psalms of lament, of hurts, uh, they often end with praise and it's kind of suspicious. You see in this Psalm, David says that he's going to worship God, even though he came to God with tears at first, Verse seven says that the reason is that God has delivered him from every trouble and his eye has looked in triumph over his enemies. But what I find so interesting about this Psalm uh, is that in the context of this story of David hiding from Saul, this actually isn't true. In 1 Samuel 23, David was delivered, yes, but his enemies were not crushed. Saul was still alive. Saul was still seeking him. So what about David allowed him to speak as if he had been delivered and as if his enemies had already been defeated, even though he was still on the run? I think about 
or what made me think about this was um, or just how I thought about it. When, when we're in the South, we often teach our kids uh, the fight songs and the cheers that are necessary when we go to the games uh, that we know how to sing along with. Like I knew how to say the fight song to Alabama when I was, before I ever went to an Alabama game. My parents taught me this, these songs. They taught me these cheers because it was an anticipation of that participation that they wanted me to get ready for it. And I think David's probably premeditated, maybe a little, um, maybe a little too early prayer of praise for what God has already done, even though he hadn't done it yet. It's kind of like this. He's, choos- he's choosing to cheer the fight song, even though he's not at the game yet. And that's the posture of the Christian life. That though our hurts are present, though it, those wounds really sting right now, we are not yet succumbed to them because we know we can hold on to the promise that God will wipe away every tear from every eye. That though we're given permission to weep right now, we also are given permission to not grieve without hope. As my friend Davis said in this uh, seminar, he said the opposite of bitterness is worship. What he meant by that is that the opposite of bitterness is not just peace, it's realizing that God is on your side. It's realizing that you will one day be comforted. It's realizing and living into the story with joy that you have a God who loves you and cares and has eternally covenanted himself with you. And that means everything's gonna be okay. And so even right now, you can cheer. You can say the fight song. You can worship. I wanna apply this text in two really practical ways as we come to a close, as I was thinking about this. One question you might have was, well, where does forgiveness and reconciliation come in? So you've been hurt by somebody. How, okay, how do we work these things out now? We know God comforts us, but what does it look like to actually move forward in these relationships? What I would say is that Psalm 54 is the prerequisite to forgiveness and reconciliation. What I mean by that is the sheer fact that David and us get to have this sort of intimacy vulnerability with God is a miracle because we know what the gospel says. The gospel says that we are all sinners. We are all in rebellion. We have all turned our face away from God. And in his holiness, what that deserves is God to turn his face away from us. And yet what the gospel also proclaims is that God has chosen not to turn his face away from us, but to atone for our sins in Christ and has invited us to come to him like a child. And he is the father to give him our honest feelings about what's going on, even though in the gospel, we are the offenders and we have no right to ask God to intervene. That is the scandal of grace that we get to go to God with vulnerability and brokenness because he has invited us by his grace to come to him. I think when that starts to hit home, the beauty of that relationship that we have with God on account of Jesus Christ That's the only way that we can then move to other relationships with categories like forgiveness or reconciliation or grace or mercy. It's only in the gospel do we find these resources for truly restored relationships. Second, what if the person that hurt me isn't asking for forgiveness? If you ever thought of that, what if the person that hurt me isn't asking for forgiveness? What if it doesn't look like that relationship could ever be reconciled? What do I do with that? 
It's interesting that if you looked at 1 Samuel 23, the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 24, David finds himself in a cave hiding from Saul and Saul actually goes into that cave with him. David's in the shadows and it's actually a quirky kind of funny story. Saul is going in there to use the restroom. And as Saul is using the restroom, David has every opportunity. He sees Saul, Saul doesn't see him. He has every opportunity to take justice into his own hands, to seek him out, maybe even be justified in doing it. But what David does is he lets Saul go. He doesn't let Saul know he's there, lets him walk out safe and sound and puts his future really in trusting God's hands. Look, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you how exactly you're to navigate the complex dynamics of your relationships. I don't have the answers for all of those. But what I am saying is that if the gospel is true, that in the face of our sin, Jesus continues to be patient with us, self-controlled with us, continues to move towards us, not with a bitter heart, but with a heart of compassion and love and kindness. I also think that means at least we can control what we can control. That self-control and patience and peace, while that relationship may not still be reconciled at all, at least we can have a little bit of a slice or a category for what Jesus does in our relationship and how he meets us with his kindness continually, even though we continue to meet him with our rebellion. This Psalm is basically my long-winded answer of saying, yes, breakups matter. (laughs) Uh, Parent relationships and dynamics matter. Roommate drama is a significant thing because what I think about all of our relationship dynamics, however big or small, is they are all the groundwork for where God works his love into our hearts. It's in navigating these complexities of the relationship that we get to know the complexity and the beauty and the majesty of the way that Jesus Christ loves us. And so this is the invitation today to lean into that, to be honest with God and to let him give you hope in the midst of your hurt. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that you're a God who moves towards us in love, Uh, not just to forgive us, not just so that we can be at peace with you and ourselves, but that we can be comforted, that our hurts can be dignified, that our conflicts can be resolved by getting categories for that in you, Father, would your spirit empower us to be a people who do not grieve without hope? Um, Help us not suppress and distract ourselves from our wounds, uh, but help us lean on you, the covenant-keeping God, who in Jesus Christ has given us a hope beyond all hopes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.